You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined this week by Brendan Sinclair, Managing Editor. How are you, sir? I am doing well. Any week where a new handheld gaming system is announced is a good week for me. Well, that's two for two for you. That's two good weeks in a row. OLED counts, I guess. OLED counts. It, it, is, it is technically new. It is technically handheld. It counts. Also joining us is news editor Daniel Partis. How are you? Hello, I am well. I'm also very excited um, about a second week in a row of a portable device to talk about. Uh, Marie, our Academy writer, was uh, hoping to be on the show, but she's busy working on some jobs and stuff. But she basically has been greeting everyone with the words Steam Deck, all in capital, <laughs> capital letters, all day. <laughs> so I think she's quite excited. Yeah, she's, she's looking for Baldur's Gate 3 on, on the go. I mean, Divinity Original Sin was great on, on Switch, but the text size issues, and uh, I don't know. That's something we can definitely dive into, as our main topic this week is the Steam Deck. Valve has unveiled its long-rumoured PC gaming handheld. It's called the Steam Deck. It's got a 7-inch touchscreen. It's a console-like control, so there's a D-pad and twin analog sticks and face buttons and triggers either side. It's also got trackpads on the front for mouse-like precision and a tilt-sensing gyro, so it's got all the type of uh, controller inputs you would expect. Valve claims that the battery can last for up to eight hours in lighter use, meaning web browsing or game streaming. Uh, There are various models available. The cheapest one is $400 with 64 gigabytes of uh, internal storage. The mid-range has 256 gigabytes of SSD storage and sells for $529. The 512 SSD storage model sells for $649. All models are coming out in December. And this has got a lot of people talking. Like, even, it's one of those things that, even though we all knew it was coming, actually seeing it, it actually being real, prompts a lot of discussion. What was your uh, reaction when this was announced? My reaction when when I, I first saw it come across was was uh, sort of like, oh my gosh, it it actually is real. Because <laughs> you say uh, we all knew it was coming, and and there had been some reports about it, but there were also some reports about Switch Pro, right? So between that. Having been so recently recalibrating my expectations of of how reliable these reports are, and then just with Valve's stance on hardware in the past, I wasn't sure if this was actually going to happen, but it looks like they have not only taken the plunge here, but done it in an impressively committed way. It's an original piece of hardware running on like a custom AMD co-developed processor specific for the Steam Deck because it's not just like off-the-shelf parts slapped together in this thing because there's clearly been a bit of effort put into the R&D on it. I'm, I'm like, well, that's that's really interesting. Now, this thing also is like, it is huge, right? It's like, it's, it's a seven-inch touchscreen. It's the size of a Vita and a half or something. It's an Atari Lynx caliber portable. And I use portable in quotation marks there. But it kind of has to be because it's an actual PC. It's it's a Linux-based PC, and you can install whatever you want on it. You can put Windows on it if you want. It's got a USB-C port, which will work with, you know, any kind of peripherals that you have lying around are supposed to, to work just fine with it. To get a gaming PC in a handheld form factor and to get it there for $400, I'm impressed by that. I mean, we spend 100 bucks for a pair of Joy-Cons, right? And that's just some of the inputs, never mind 
the screen, the memory, the the everything else that went into this. My first reaction is, is points for effort here. It doesn't look like they've really cut many corners. I remain skeptical, I guess, about their commitment to this thing. Like the Steam controller and the Steam Link were they were around for a couple years, then they weren't. The the Steam boxes that they were hoping to to have as kind of like just Steam PCs that you hook up to your TV. Those struggled at first and never really got much attention after that. So so like Valve is kind of a cut and run track record on hardware. There's not much about the uh, Steam Deck that I look at and say, hmm, I really wish they had done this, that, or the other thing to make the hardware itself better. I was kind of on a similar wavelength, um, looking at the announcement purely from a, a consumer angle as somebody that that would buy this. I think I am the target audience that, that needs the Steam Deck um, as somebody that spends a lot of money on Steam on PC games, but then after a day of working at a PC, doesn't want to sit and play games at the PC. So this is like a a perfect device for me, but the more I I, I looked at it and I looked at the specs and I looked at the design, the less I was enthused about it. It looks, I mean, I've not had one or or seen one, so I, I can't really comment on it, but it looks a little bit cumbersome in its design and the way that it plays and the storage seems like a little bit of an issue like a base a base model of 64 gig it's not a lot of games so you you kind of have to account for for more storage if you want to use this properly and it's just little things like that 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 kind of very quickly soured my perspective from that's great i want one immediately to do i want that one i think what i'm trying to say is this is a perfect concept but i i don't know if i'm wholly sold on what steam has presented so far but i'm not not sold either I'm similar to you, Danielle. I am cautiously optimistic about it. The storage is certainly an issue. Um, I saw a fellow journalist like, kind of pointing out that you know, 64 gigabytes doesn't even cover one Call of Duty game these days, you know, let, alone, let alone multiple games. I think it kind of depends on what you would end up using the machine for. 64 gigabytes would be enough to kind of in the style of Vita, like a lot of people I know who had a Vita treated it as their indie machine. And I think that's exactly what I would use this for. Like my, my initial reaction when I saw the Steam Deck announced was that is an expensive, impressive, but expensive niche product compared to like the Switch OLED. You know, Nintendo products have very kind of mainstream appeal. All right, $350 is not a very mainstream price and neither is $400, but that is very kind of mainstream appeal with, you know, the family-friendly Nintendo games you can get on it. You know what you're getting. It's very kind of accessible, um, a Switch. This feels a bit more like a product for an enthusiast, a, a core gamer. It feels like something for a niche, but I think I am in that niche. As I've been ranting to you guys are kind of off air, I haven't had a Steam-worthy PC since 2011. I used to have a Franken-Rig that my housemates gave me, basically built out the spare parts that they didn't want for their own rigs, and that allowed me to access Steam games. That thing died in 2011. Since then, I've had laptops, but they've never been powerful enough for gaming, even some indie games, like what seems like a really simple game. The example I'll give is um, Sunless Skies, which is the game by Fail Better. It's like the top-down exploration game set in the fallen London universe. You look at it and you think, oh, that's quite a simple game. No, my laptop is like, it's it's about to you know take off into orbit just trying to run the menu. So I've I've got all these games on my 
Steam account that I've had previously. And, you know, nature of being a journalist in the in the games industry, occasionally I'm offered a free Steam key and I have foolishly taken those thinking, oh, this will run on my machine. And it doesn't. This theoretically would finally let me run all those but how well they would run, I don't know. I think I need. It's one of those things. I'm not going to get it at launch, but I need to know how well it reviews, and ideally, kind of get my hands on it, either someone else's copy or maybe like a consumer show or something. <laughs> Remember those consumer shows. Remember physical events where you got to try things before you bought them. If those ever returned, and I, I take a shining to a, a Steam Deck, I can see myself buying one of these. So I wonder if Valve here is not actually selling a handheld gaming system. They are just selling the myth, the fabrication, that you someday might be able to get through your Steam backlog. <laughs> and this is just like, you know, 650 bucks that people will throw at them in order to, like, pretend that they're going to get through that backlog somehow. And I don't know if that's if that's going to happen. It's never going to happen because the multiple Steam sales that happen every year with their heavy discounts, like no one, no one will get through their backlog because they keep adding to it. Even me, who doesn't really use Steam, I occasionally pick something and I was like, ah, oh, if I ever have a machine I want that, that runs Steam, I can now have this game for a few pounds. Job done. To be honest, what this machine will save me from is buying games on PC and then wanting to play it in a different chair and then buying it on the Switch. Um, so maybe that it's a long-term investment to stop me from doing that. I really like the hardware for the most part. Like, I've got some concerns about, you know, like, is it going to be all that comfortable? The, the buttons and the D-pad in particular seem really close to the edge of the machine. But, you know, for scale, because the machine is, like, larger than an original Xbox Duke controller. May, maybe there's more room there than it looks like. But just despite looking at that hardware and saying, like, wow, that's really nice, I've got very little um, temptation to buy this thing. I haven't done much... PC gaming in years, uh, particularly since I deleted my Steam account in what, 2017. And, and as much as I will be the first person to like say, when's it coming to Switch? And gee, I love dedicated gaming handhelds. I, I have so many problems with Valve and the way they, they run their business. I, I can't justify giving them more money for this. I'd be intrigued to see the review, kind of going back to what you were saying last week about the Vita, about how this feels if it falls on your face. <laughs> oh, this this will put you in the hospital. <laughs> There's going to be a whole new wave of uh, moral panic about gaming endangering our youth just from the the people crushed under this thing. So I am seeing some people who are very optimistic about this. So I'm, I'm talking to a bunch of analysts and developers um, in the hopes of kind of getting some features together for, to, for next week. And some of them are saying, like, that, you know, this, this could be a massive shift for PC gaming because PC gaming has always been tied to that bulky device that you have on your desktop, you know, either the tower or even your laptop. Okay, you can take your laptop when anywhere, but you're still sitting in a specific place. And I know they've tried to bring the PC gaming experience to the TV with, as you were saying, like, you know, the Steam machines and the Steam Link and the Steam controller and there's big picture mode and you can get that kind of couch experience if you really put the effort in. But in terms of making PC gaming accessible, this, in theory, could 
be a massive step towards that. Obviously, the price isn't too accessible at the moment, but if you had an absurdly rich parent buy for four hundred dollars, you know, their their child or their teenager or someone a Steam Deck, then that person, I think, so I saw someone reference this will have the biggest launch lineup in history because obviously it's got something stupid. What's the total number of Steam games now? Is it something like twenty four thousand? It's five or six thousand games a year. And this is a platform that's been going since 2004. So, you know, the, that, that's a massive library to access. And there are, there are developers who are saying, like, I'm really excited for this. This can potentially open up PC gaming in a way that has not been possible before. I don't know if that will happen, but I love that the optimism is there. I feel like this, this console is more putting PC games in the hands of different types of players rather than making PC gaming more accessible. Because PC gaming is is a completely different type of playstyle, and it's it's largely a keyboard and mouse thing. Even though that's kind of evolved over the years, it's it that's that playstyle is very rooted there. This is more Steam taking its library and accessing people that aren't PC gamers or PC players. Uh, I'm just saying, look, you can buy our games even if you you don't have a PC. You don't you're not a PC gamer. You can still you can still give us money. You know, it's. I mean, that might be a cynical way to look at it, but it feels more like Steam enabling different types of, of, of gamers to play their games rather than bringing more people into the PC market. That raises more concerns, though, because as Brendan has covered brilliantly in the past, like particularly when he <laughs> deleted his Steam account, the as much as we say, like, you know, the biggest launch lineup in history in terms of the sheer library and, you know, that 4,000, 5,000 games have been released on Steam every year, the quality and acceptability of those titles can vary greatly if I am being very generous. I just got tired of, like, the blatant racism that they tolerated on steam and the steam forums and and everything when i deleted my account because you could even bring it up to them like they, they would tell their mods and the mods would be like use the automated report tool kind of thing we'll take care of it and they never did the only way that stuff ever got pulled off of the steam forums was when you would have periodic news reports about hey look at all the awful stuff that valve allows on the steam forums and you know it's they have more than 100 million users on, on the thing, and then they list the people that do mod work across Steam for the company, and it's like there's 15 people or something. There's maybe a couple dozen, and the number of actual staffers, Valve employees that do it is a dozen or less. It's changed over the years a bit. So like, there's minimal moderation of any kind there, and they clearly don't care about it until someone actually writes about it for, for a news publication. And that happens again and again and again. And then you have like the, you know, here's here's a game that, about sexual assault and it gets everyone up in arms. And Valve takes days to do anything about it. They work with the developer to try and like, you know, oh, well, you know, there might be these legal concerns about depicting this kind of sexual assault in, in this region. And then they still get, you know, so many people calling on them just to say, like, no, you, you can't sell this. It's going beyond just bad taste. And then when they finally do say, OK, we're not going to sell it, they, they make it clear in their public statement that they've, they didn't sell it because of, you know, it, it raised uh, questions about the business. Like there were, there were business unknowns there, as in third party AAA publishers wouldn't want to have their games on the same shelves in the same storefront 
as this game about sexual assault. You know, Valve's not a platform holder as, as much as they technically they're a platform holder because Steam's a platform and they're running it. But they aren't going to function in the way that people expect a Microsoft or a Nintendo or a Sony to function. They're not going to provide the same content moderation, parental controls. They, they're not going to have the same sense of responsibility about what's on their platform. And in some ways, you know, that's, that's good because some of the stuff that Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft won't allow on their platforms absolutely should be. But I think it's, it's a big impediment to Steam Deck becoming like a mainstream product. Like, I don't, I don't think this is PC gaming. It's not the route to brand new audiences out there in, in you know, Walmart land or whatever, because it's not going to be sold in Walmart. Valve's selling it directly right now i haven't heard anything about plans to put it into stores i doubt that valve is going to be running commercials for this or marketing it outside of well maybe outside of steam i don't know i haven't i haven't really seen any valve index commercials uh, even though i haven't been frequenting vr specific websites maybe where i could see them doing it but i like i haven't seen valve advertise much of anything since left for dead 2 i think and even that surprised the heck out of me, just seeing billboards for that game when it when it first came out. They're not mass appeal. They're not mainstream. They're not, it's not their game. And I don't think it's their specialty, really. And it's weird to say that about the standard, the dominant PC storefront with, you know, over 100 million users. I just don't see them making a push to be a platform holder in the sense of a Microsoft, Sony, or Nintendo, or anything like that. Some of the indies I've been talking to, uh, hope that this does go mainstream because if you, if this can get into the hands of millions of players, the fact that the barriers to entry on Steam are so much lower than Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, because Brennan, you're right, like this is not a platform in the same sense that you know Nintendo, PlayStation, Xbox are platforms in that those are still walled gardens, to use that phrase. They are, they are still gatekeepers. There are still barriers to overcome to get your game onto that market. Less so with Steam. Steam, my understanding is you literally just pay $100 and your game can be self-published on Steam. So that if this were to get in, and we're into hypotheticals, obviously, but if this were to get into the hands of millions over the course of the years, then that makes this a massive platform for indies and for studios. Whether or not that comes to pass, it's not clear that that's going to happen either way. But I can see why some studios are getting excited about that because of the prospect of here is a games device that is in theory more accessible just in terms of you can just you don't have to have this hefty multi thousand pound rig tight you know strapped to your desk this is a portable device you can pick up you can play in any room of the house because you are not taking this out of the house it's too heavy and any game that people want to publish can get onto this machine almost no questions asked and that is an exciting prospect for developers i'd agree with that but it completely depends on the success of it and it's i guess it's again sort of like cautious uh excitement and optimism for this machine to do well and for steam to market it so it does compete or you know does establish itself as a as a as a platform holder we should specify that this isn't like locked to steam like because it's a pc and you can run whatever on there you can get your games from good old games or itch.io there really aren't those obstacles to to getting your games on this platform it really is just a matter of you know what the user experience is going to be like 
to get them on the platform because it's Linux based. So, I mean, maybe maybe Steam Deck actually does really great things for Linux more so than for for PC gaming. But uh, yeah, there, there's still going to be like a learning curve and a bit of fiddling. I, I imagine that people hoops to jump through if they want to to use Steam Deck without just loading up Steam. See, that excites me even more purely on my on my own circumstances because i also have god games that i have not played or been able to play because i don't have a game worthy pc so if you're telling me that this device in theory because i've been reading that it's linux based but it has some sort of like it can translate windows programs i I haven't read this in depth but there is something about it can read windows programs or kind of run windows programs as if they are on linux or something to that effect if you're telling me I can play Thief 2 The Metal Age on a portable device without having to change a semicolon in the .ini file to get it running on my laptop, shut up and take my money. Do you think this will reignite some competition in the handheld market after the Switch has gone basically uncontested mm-hmm. for four or five years? I can't see Microsoft launching a handheld specific device because they're more about the ecosystem now they're more about getting game pass onto established devices i can see a game pass app coming to the steam deck but i can't see can't necessarily see like an xbox handheld there won't be a sony handheld as i think if sony were going to attempt the vita 2 inspired by the success of the switch we'd have heard about it by now there'd have been all those anonymous reports sources close to the matter etc i think the most we can we'll see is if if this were to take off you will see hardware manufacturers people like you know dell hp alienware those sort of people almost like reverse engineering this a bit and making their own models of this which i think was the original plan for the steam machines but again this all depends on this taking off this all could as brendan says like two years from now this could all be a moot point yeah, and and as much as we talk about like wow, such a huge lineup of games available for it, I'm skeptical about how how well the play experience will actually be for a lot of those games that were designed with a PC in mind. Uh, even even playing on laptop for for a lot of games feels like a kind of a cramped compromise. There are two touchpads on the front of the the Steam Deck. Uh, which are are supposed to sort of replicate mouse controls, which I imagine are probably better than using an analog stick to do that. But like, I've I've never been a fan of touchpads, really. And the idea of trying to control a whole lot of PC games with a touchpad instead of a mouse is, is just kind of unappealing to me. And even though, you know, we should be able to connect a mouse to the Steam Deck because it's just a PC and use that. Like, that's not exactly... You're getting into clearly suboptimal use cases for the system. So it would be it would be great if, if this thing just works and then it inspires Alienware and Dell and all those others to make their own handheld gaming PCs and get the price down in the same way. And, and then Sony and Microsoft are like, okay, well, we need to do our own. I could see Microsoft making basically this, but just for Game Pass and streaming. Because they've they've talked about making, you know, just a a dummy terminal that connects to your TV like that, right? That idea is I don't know, it's still appealing to me to play like the AAA high-end games on a Switch like handheld, but I don't think Nintendo is going to let Microsoft put game pass on there and i don't think the steam deck is going to get 
mainstream enough to really make much of a difference because you're going to be able to use game pass pc streaming on the steam deck i assume you probably can from the word go because it's it's enabled in browsers isn't it so if you can run a browser or run the relevant browser on your steam deck then yeah you automatically have access to game pass um which you know or, or stadia or luna or other cloud streaming services quick note on playstation i guess technically this is in a way a playstation handheld because you can get horizon zero dawn on steam and ghost of Tsushima, i think is now being confirmed for steam so technically you can play so playstation games on this handheld playstation now is accessible through pc right and there's a pc remote play app i believe the experience is never <laughs> never great and no one no one bothers to to jump through the hoops if this is the thing that means we don't get a Vita 2, I will be very disappointed. <laughs> Going back to your concern about um, controllers, you know, I, I have two concerns as to how well games will run. So as you say, yeah, the, the lack of mouse controls and touchpads. I imagine touchpads, if you train yourself a little bit, can be okay and a decent substitute for mouse controls and, say, a shooter. But I look at my own Steam library and things like Age of Empires 2 or Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. I can't imagine playing those with a touchpad. I imagine it's quite laborious, like dragging the cursor around with your thumb. The other concern I'm kind of borrowing this from from developers I saw on Twitter is tech size. That screen is only seven inches large. And I highly doubt developers are going to reconfigure the UI or the tech size or whatever to account for people on tiny screens. All PC games are typically built for you're either on a larger screen or you're on a medium to larger screen that is immediately in front of your face. So reading the text isn't really an issue. Okay, yeah, you can move your face closer to the screen in this instance, but I don't know. I do worry that some of the text and uh, some of the UI will be too small on this and it, it will be a bit too much effort for developers to reconfigure specifically for the Steam Deck. I don't know how many people will go to that effort, especially if this doesn't sell. Optimization in, in general was something that I was concerned about as well, because at least at least when something is, is put on the Switch, it's optimised for the Switch, but I'm worried that a lot of games will just run poorly or whatever because they're not optimized for this smaller device like you just said but again that's just another we'll see what happens there is the Conflict Minerals report Brendan did. This year's was even bigger roundup than usual. Like, talk us through it. What are the highlights? Um, and why is this an important piece that we run every year? So we've actually been doing this for seven years now. For anyone who doesn't really know um, about the issue, uh, Conflict Minerals are tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold. They're, they're used in a lot of modern electronics. And in the mid-2000s, it became really clear the United Nations identified clear connections between the mining of these minerals in the Democratic Republic of Congo and the funding of non-state armed militias there. They were either running the mines or they were extorting money from the people who own the mines, taxing trade routes, and then they were using the money to fund their their armed conflicts and and the mines could be run in you know really poor conditions with uh, essentially forced labor it's a human rights concern right it's like hey we get all this great neat technology but it's coming 
from the abject suffering of all these people, and that needs to change. There was greater awareness about this for, for a few years, and then finally in 2010, the, the United States passed the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, covered a whole bunch of stuff, small part of the law, uh, dealt with conflict minerals and said companies that are dealing with these three TGs, as they're called, tin, tantalum, tungsten, gold, and sourcing some of them from the Democratic Republic of the Congo or neighboring countries, they had to disclose about their efforts to make sure that their supply chain was not funding these militias and, and armed conflict and human rights abuses. They started having to report these in 2014. The numbers were just shockingly bad because Sony, to make a PlayStation, they have their suppliers. They go to the suppliers for the raw materials that they, well, the components that they need to put together into the PlayStation. But the people who made those components, they have their own suppliers. And their own suppliers might have their own suppliers. And eventually you get down the, the supply chain and you're running into smelters or um, refiners. Is, is That's basically where a whole bunch of the, the raw metal is brought in by other people and then they sell, you know, here's just, you know, like gold bullion, something, bars of, of the, the metal that's been kind of processed. The abuses are happening past the smelters and the refiners. It's, it's happening where the people are actually extracting the minerals from the ground. So Sony and whoever never had to think about where those you know minerals were coming out of the ground before. And when they started disclosing their efforts, they had to say like, okay, well, here's our supply chain and here's how many smelters or refiners... Are, are in there. And, and a lot of them were having trouble even with their suppliers because they would have to ask their suppliers to ask their suppliers to ask their suppliers, you know, just where the stuff came from until you got back down to the, the smelters or the refiners because they were kind of the last step in the chain that had good insight into to where the mines were. The numbers were horrifying then. It was like, hey, we've identified 26% of our suppliers actually responded to our surveys about this to try and, you know, flesh out where things are. And things have gotten a lot better since then. There are some companies that have been great every year. Apple, in particular, is sort of industry-leading in this front, which is encouraging considering Apple was one of the companies that got the most flack in the mid-2000s for the human rights abuses and the, the slave labor that might be used in, in creation of iPhones. You know, there was that, that game phone story, which Apple banned from the App Store because it was just, you know, a clear critique of, of Apple itself. But they've cleaned up that a lot. And they've been active in a lot of the uh, governmental and international efforts to clean up supply chains. Microsoft has been... Uh, not quite as good, but they've also been sort of industry standard. Sony has been, they're, they're showing improvement, but it's very, very slow. Only about 85% of the smelters and refiners in their supply chain have been certified as like conflict-free, basically. They've passed an audit based on standards set up by an international body, the OECD, and, and they've kind of you know, done their due diligence to make sure that their their business isn't funding these human rights abuses. 
and video games in general and tech in general, I guess, has, has been on the higher end. I guess, of, of industries. Some of them are, are not very good, but even within video games, some of the companies that participate uh, in the industry are pretty not great. Amazon, for example. We, we looked at them for the first time this year, prompted by the, uh, the Luna streaming service, but they've been, you know, they've been involved in, in making hardware and gaming hardware too, tablets and stuff, the, the, the Kindle Fires and, and things like that for quite a while. And... They've been reporting on 3TGs and these disclosures since 2014, and they've literally said basically the same thing every year. A majority of their suppliers have certified that their supply chain was clean, and the remaining ones are still completing investigations of their supply chains. They don't say how much of a majority. It's, it's like a copy and pasted line in their disclosure year after year after year. They don't give any indication as to making any progress on this. They've, they've actually shown zero demonstrable progress in all the years they've been doing this. They may have been actually made progress. But I mean, part of, part of the, the spirit of the uh, OECD framework that everyone's basing their disclosures on is like, you have to disclose this stuff. You have to hold yourself accountable for it and you have to improve your due diligence wherever you can and amazon has shown absolutely no interest in that and a company as large as amazon their corporate sustainability website lists 1,388 suppliers worldwide and when you think about how big a business they are to have them not care creates a pretty huge window for these abuses to take place. Like they can be enabling them in a massive way simply by not caring about this as much as the next company does. And if you look at their corporate sustainability or, and responsibility website, they, they talk about all this stuff that they're doing, you know, like, hey, we, we care about eradicating forced labor from the supply chain. We care about fair wages. We... we care about our environmental performance but then when you look at the actual goals that they have set for themselves to make progress on each of these things they are so incredibly modest like last year they said their their goal on forced labor was to launch training for amazon suppliers on responsible recruitment practices by the end of 2020 and in this year's update they say like oh we enrolled 31 of our suppliers in a responsible recruitment training program. So that's, you know, roughly 2% of all Amazon suppliers are in this, you know, training program about responsibly recruiting people and making sure that you're not getting forced labor and eliminating things like uh, recruitment fees and, and dodgy tactics like that. That's just Amazon. And the thing is like this, this is also going beyond the the minerals that i mentioned three tgs and it goes beyond the drc because the dodd frank the u.s law only requires you to disclose if you're publicly traded and even then it's only for you know if you're doing the the business in the drc if you're sourcing minerals from them but there are a lot of conflict affected and high risk areas is the term that that's used throughout the world, you know, North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa. Like this is not just a, oh my gosh, Central Africa is the place where the human rights abuses takes place kind of issue. But a lot of companies 
they kind of focus on that and they only deal with that part of it because that's the only part that the law makes them deal with. Nintendo, for example, they have a pretty good track record on 3TGs and sourcing from certified smelters and refiners, which is great. But part of the reason that they have this uh, good track record is because they have a policy not to source any of their materials from conflict-affected and high-risk areas, which includes a lot of Central Africa. But if you avoid these areas entirely, the problem is that there are still the minerals business there, still smelters and refiners, but they might be going to the trouble of getting audited, of passing these standards, which might be more difficult in their areas, and they're not being rewarded for it by actually having business. They're being punished for it just because of where they come from. Google is a company that actually encourages all of its suppliers to get their materials from these smelters in conflict-affected and high-risk areas who actually are getting audited and, and you know, living up to these standards. Because if you don't, then it becomes like, you know, an embargo on these areas. And how are they going to develop economically when the legitimate companies that are putting money out into the world for their minerals are avoiding you entirely? You know, what, what's what's your business then going to be? Well, it's going to be the illegitimate companies. It's it's going to be the, the people that don't care about human rights abuses. And you're you're not going to be able to sort of build a legitimate business there. And, and if if the economy is not built up, then the, the logic goes that there will be greater instability in the country, continuing instability. And then you wind up with, you know, these these conflict areas that just are in perennial conflict and turmoil. So that's one problem. Another problem is the mining industry. You've got artisanal small-scale miners, and then you've got large-scale industrial miners. And large-scale industrial miners is like the bucket excavators that are like as tall as the Statue of Liberty and weigh as much as the Eiffel Tower. Like that, that kind of scale of machinery. They produce like 90% of the world's minerals these large-scale industrial mining operations. But like that that giant machinery only needs a handful of people to run it. And then in the artisanal and small-scale side, you've got like small-scale miners might have bulldozers, they might have excavators, and that helps some. But then the, the artisanal miners, they are like literally a family operation with like shovels and picks kind of level of mechanization like they just aren't and they are the ones that are so vulnerable to extortion to forced labor to human rights abuses even though they only produce 10 percent of the world's minerals because it's so much less efficient than the large-scale mining because it requires so many more people to get the minerals that way they actually make up 90 percent of the labor force for mining across the world. These are the the operations that are less likely to have safety procedures in place. They're less likely to have the proper government registration and certification that they might need to be a mining operation. If you cut these people out of your supply chain, you're basically just kind of abandoning 90% of the world's miners who these laws and regulations were sort of intended to protect. 
it's a difficult problem. It's not one that's like specific to the games industry or that only the games industry can solve. It's a thorny area where different people are trying different approaches. There doesn't need to be a villain in the story in order for villainous things to happen. It's a sad story to work on every year. It's encouraging to see improvements. There are reasons to believe that things might be improving from here as well. There are increasing number of private-public partnerships between mining companies and and governments to uh, formalize that artisanal and small-scale mining operations to bring them up to speed and make sure that they are providing the safety protections for their employees and complying with environmental regulations uh, with their operations. And these public-private partnerships are also committing to buy materials from those artisanal small-scale miners over the long haul, which is encouraging. The the London Metal Exchange, um, which is like one of the largest metals commodity exchanges in, in the world, has said that, you know, they, they need everything that goes through their doors, everything that's exchanged through there, to be coming from certified smelters and refiners by 2023. I think. And and next year, everyone's got to be in the process of becoming certified. So that's encouraging. The European Union, effective January 1st, their conflict minerals disclosure laws came into effect. And they're better than Dodd-Frank in that they apply worldwide to conflict-affected high-risk areas, but they only apply to importers. So the company that actually brings the materials into the, 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 the country, but it doesn't necessarily catch Microsoft or Sony the goods that they bring into the country are finished products necessarily. There's hope that they will just do their disclosures voluntarily. I mean, particularly as, as global companies, a lot of these might be doing it in the U.S. anyways. So there's, there's some reason to think that things might be getting better. But there are also still stragglers like Amazon and Valve, which I mentioned earlier, because we've asked Valve for years now about their conflict minerals policies, even, because... They make hardware, you know, the Steam Link, Steam Controller, Valve Index, and now Steam Deck. They have not even, like, responded to our inquiries. They don't even see reason to, like, just put out a statement saying, hey, slave labor's bad and we're going to try not to contribute to it. Nothing like that. Uh, they've shown no no indication of caring. And they don't need to disclose because they're not a publicly traded company in, in the U.S., but I, I would still think, like, just out of basic common decency or even wanting to appear to have basic common decency, that you would at least through three years and, and multiple outreaches each year, that you could at least be arsed to say, yeah, that's bad and we don't want to be doing that. But they don't. They don't care enough. Yeah, it's an emotional roller coaster doing that story. <laughs> I bet it's so intense to, to, to actually hearing you talk about it after reading it was just it is so convoluted and I guess not something that people are actively thinking about all the time but when you start to think about each cog and how these devices are, are made from from the, the ground up basically it's it, it's difficult I, I can imagine it's incredibly difficult 
that is all we have time for. And now all of our readers have some weekend reading to do. I will include a link to the Conflict Minerals report in the show notes and the article promoting this podcast. We're going to be back on Thursday with our next GamesIndustry.biz Academy Jobs cast. It's our third one. We're looking at onboarding. That's part of our Get a Job in Games month, which is a month of careers-centric articles and guides. You can find all of those on the site. And as always, you can get more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at GamesIndustry.biz. I'm sorry, but what did, did I just talk for like 30 minutes, 20 minutes straight? Yeah, that was that probably does not make for good podcast listening. <laughs>